Welcome to Encyclopedia Obscura. My name is Casey. I'm Karen. And this is the podcast where two friends journey through the encyclopedia, one weird, mysterious, or obscure subject at a time. Today's episode is titled I for Inventors. Yay! Finally! Karen and I have we've had a time <laughs> trying to record this. So uh... bear with us as we are both having a glass of wine. So this should be a fun episode. Oh yeah, because I never drink. Nope, she never drinks. Nope. And I am three glasses in. So, here we go. Welcome to our shit show. Welcome to the literal shit show that is this episode. Yes. All right. So, I feel like inventors are pretty straightforward, so I'm I'm only going to briefly go over what an inventor is before I get into some real quick blips of some famous inventors. The definition of an inventor is, as a noun, a person who invented a particular process or device or who invents things as an occupation. So now I'm going to get into some really famous inventors. First, we have American George Washington Carver, born 1864, died in 1943. So like during World War II. Yeah, wow, good for him. Yeah, and you just think about it, 1864 and going through all that without like good health care. Wasn't he the son of slaves as well? Yep, yep. He invented peanut butter, which is Karen's favorite. No. Um, if you were a fan of the show, please send Karen peanut butter. If you want Karen to die, send her peanut butter. Yep, just send her a ton of peanut butter. Make sure it's chunky. The more peanuts, the better. He was an actor. Karen's so mad. She's trying to kill me. <laughs> this this is premeditated murder. I don't think so. Yes, it is. You just like solicited somebody to kill me. I never said kill you. I just said send you peanut butter. Yeah, which would cause my death. I don't know. I feel like you would live. You're strong. You're hearty. You're made of that tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And when my very strong throat muscles close up, I'm not going to be breathing anymore. Eh, you have an EpiPen. You'll be fine. No, I don't. What? That shit's expensive and mine expired like three years ago. Oh, Jesus Christ. Welcome to America. Yeah. Where you can die Born of peanuts. in the USA. Dead Where they don't care if you die at all. <laughs> okay. So, George Washington Carver, he invented peanut butter. He was an agricultural chemist. And not only did he give us peanut butter, but he also came up with 300 other uses for peanuts and hundreds of uses for soybeans, pecans, and sweet potatoes. He also, as a black man in the South, was no stranger to adversity. Um, and he managed to do all this in the face of adversity. Pretty impressive. I would say so. I mean, he did capitalize on a product that will kill me, but that's fine. I mean, well, I mean, his intention was not to kill you, though. No, he didn't even know me. He didn't yeah, know he... I'd be born hundreds of years later allergic to peanuts. You literally were born like over 100 years after he was born. Yes. 1864. We were born in 1986. Yep. It's a while. 122 a years later. Yeah, you can do math better than I can. <laughs> All right, so next up is Johannes Gutenberg, a German inventor and goldsmith. He is best known for the Gutenberg Press, which we love because it's a printing machine that was able to print books. We do so, love that. 
that he made the Bible widely distributed. And- okay, you know what? Don't don't take this for me. Don't don't do that. I was having a I was having a moment. Okay. Yeah, and I'm just like Bible. Fuck it all. <laughs> So he kicked off a lot of things. His invention partners really well with Kai Loon's inventor of paper. Oh. Loon was a Chinese inventor who lived from 50 to 121 CE. He would use materials such as hemp, silk, bark, and even fishing net to create sheets of fiber. The sheets were then suspended in water before being removed for drying. Cool. Yeah, so China and then Gutenberg, German, yeah, yeah, German. I literally just said it was German. So China <laughs> and Germany are uh, killing it. Um, number three is John. It's L-O-G-I-E. And I want to say Logie. That's not right. Right? L-O-G-I-E? Oh. Yeah. Logie? Uh, what nationality? Don't know. Didn't write it down. Uh, let's just call him John Logie. Well, his last name is Baird. I imagine he's like British. Barrett? Baird. B-A-I-R-D. Baird. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's probably like Logi. Logi. Okay. So, number three is John Logie Baird. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he was born in 1888 and died in 1946. He invented the mechanical television, to which I reply, I'm sorry, what? There was a mechanical television? Mechanical and like... That you, like, wind it up, or... Uh, dude, I don't know, but it, it was mechanical television. So, like, before electricity. Yep. But, yeah, there was an earlier version of the TV. He also patented inventions around radar and fiber optics. Number oh, four... okay. The fiber so I, optics make sense. I still imagine, like, a tiny person, like a, a toddler, just cranking the TV. <laughs> right? Crank Carter, I gotta watch my stories. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, number four is Hetty Lamar. Mm-hmm. She was not only a Hollywood starlet and starred in films such as Algiers and Boomtown, she was also an inventor. In fact, in World War II, she invented a radio guidance system for torpedoes. By the way, she was Austrian by birth but became an American citizen in 1953. So not only did she change the course of World War II, But her inventions eventually were used to develop Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Yeah, she's super awesome. Yeah, this girl, I almost covered her, actually. But then I was like, I want to get creepier. And so I went with my own topic. She's super pretty. Have you seen a picture of her? She is super pretty. Oh, my God. She's super pretty. Yeah. So today I'm going to tell you about the Ouija board. Ooh. I know. I mean, I feel like most people who are listening to our podcast know what a Ouija board is, but I'm going to dive into it a little bit, just in case. Mm-hmm. So, oh, also, listeners, um, it's spring when we're recording, and pollen hates me, so if I sound like I'm drowning in my own mucus, it's because I am. Delightful. Anyway, yeah, just, you know, enjoy. Anyway, so the Ouija board, also known as a spirit board or a talking board, according to Wikipedia... Is a flat game board with numbers, letters, and the words hello and goodbye on it. But actually, I was looking at a couple different Ouija boards, and not all of them say, like, hello on them. So only goodbye. Okay. Hmm. But I kind of feel like that's better than hello, because if you're trying to contact the spirits, you definitely want to say goodbye. Yeah. We're, like, we're uh, done here. Yep. You can leave now. Yeah. Please don't contact me anymore. Do not call this number again. Yep. We're done here. 
Okay, so the Ouija itself was created and named in Baltimore, Maryland. Huh. Our, our backyard when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. In 1890, okay. those using the board put their hands on something called a planchette, mm-hmm. which is heart-shaped, and we both used Ouija boards. We know what it looks like. Yes. It's a little heart-shaped thing, like a circular thing in the center so you can like hover over something. And that would uh, lead the people using the board to a message, so... For those who have never used a Ouija board, you put your hands on it, and it would lead you to, like, numbers or letters, and that would read out a message. Mm -hmm. The Ouija board is believed to help communicate with the dead. Also, fun fact, the Ouija board was actually named by itself. Its inventor said a ghost helped him name the board. Of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. Oh my god. So now I'm going to quote Haunted Walk, which I feel like is quickly becoming my new favorite website. And I'm just going to quote literally two paragraphs of their information around the Ouija board because it's, I couldn't do anything. There's no point in me paraphrasing. Like they, they killed it. There's no need for me. (laughs) And here's my podcast. And here's my podcast. (laughs) Quote, the modern Ouija board that we've become familiar with was patented by Elijah Bond. The business venture of making and selling the boards in the United States was signed over to Kennard Novelty Company in 1891 and the International Novelty Company in Canada in the same year. People adhering to the spiritualistic movement of the Victorian era were already using boards, but Bond's Ouija board was the first widespread commercial attempt to make money on the idea. A combination of good timing and smart marketing ensured that the Ouija board would become a resounding success. It's unclear if Bond and his partners genuinely believed that their board could contact spirits, but they managed to convince enough people to secure a patent for the design. Bond was involved in a number of other inventions over the years, including ones for steam-powered engines. When he wasn't participating in invention schemes, Bond practiced law in Baltimore. Yeah, law in Baltimore. The guy who created the Ouija board was a lawyer in Baltimore. At the same time, my great-great-great-grandfather was a judge in Baltimore. There you go. Baltimore was the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. Although he tried to patent another talking board towards the end of his life, the Ouija board was his monumental claim to fame. Early Ouija boards were marketed as a toy and game for the entire family, and plenty of ordinary middle-class people bought it for entertainment. This is me stepping out of the quote. Are you on crack? Like, are you on crack? So I had one. My family doesn't believe in spirits, but I'm like, they're here. I have felt them. They think I'm crazy. All right, back into the quote. However, its connections with spiritualism and its potential to communicate with the dead attracted another type of clientele. Spiritualists of all kinds were fascinated with the new device and wondered if the product could assist in their quests in communicating with the other side. For the Kennard Novelty Company, who manufactured the board, it didn't matter why people were buying their game. They were flying off the shelves and making them rich, end quote. Capitalism. Basically, yeah. Yeah, well, this is the land of free enterprise. So naturally, the Ouija board is believed by many to be bullshit, as the scientific community relates any movement on the board by those using it as the ideomotor effect, which is when there are unconscious movements of those controlling the pointer. When I use the Ouija board, I definitely just move stuff around to mess with the other person. I know you do. Yeah, I'm a bad person. Yeah, I just got right in there and started moving shit around. I gotta say, I had one when I was in, like, middle school, and it never worked for me. 
That being said, let's talk about an instance where the board was used to make a real-life decision. In fact, a decision in court about whether someone is guilty of murdering people. I'm... All right, you know, you're just going to have to tell me about this because this sounds so fucked up. Yep, sure is. So this comes from an ABC.net article. Never heard of ABC.net, but here we are. Titled... (laughs) Who killed you, question mark, the jurors who used a Ouija board to find a murderer guilty. Back in 1994, Stephen Young was found guilty of killing Harry and Nicola Fuller. Both of them had been found dead by gunshot wounds in their home in 1993. The couple was found dead on the floor of their home. Nicola was shot three times and Harry was shot in the back of his head at close range. So basically, this was execution style. Mm Mm-hmm. The verdict from the crime came after a five-week trial, and I don't know how long trials go. Does five weeks seem like substantial? I don't. I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know. It depends on a lot of things. Uh, mostly, how much evidence there is, and then how much the defense can refute. So, okay, yeah, it's and like expert witnesses, and yeah, it's. I mean, a trial could take a day. If the dude's like, yeah, I did it, whatever. Mm. Or it okay. could take, I think the, um, like the OJ Simpson case, that took at least a month. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, five weeks. Mm. So not too long after that, a news article comes out where one of the members of the jury says four jurors tried to consult the spirits of the dead one night using a Ouija board. Not even a real one, by the way. It was made of paper mm-hmm. and a wine glass from the hotel they were staying at. So wait, they were discussing the case outside of court? Yeah, but they were all jurors together. It wasn't like they were having a conversation with someone else. I still don't think you're allowed to do that. I, I don't think you are. I'm just saying. I just think, honestly, I think they all had too much to drink. Mm-hmm. And they were like, let's contact the spirits. And they went and made their own Ouija board, literally out of paper. Oh, my God. And used a wine glass to kind of, like, move things around to, like, I don't know, give them the answer. So was there a mistrial? Oh, wait and see. Okay. So when that information became public, the conviction of Young, who was convicted of murdering these two individuals, was there was a retrial ordered. Mm-hmm. And after another five week, which is odd, like five weeks both times, uh, I guess so. Well, they presented exactly the same stuff on the same days. Makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. Um, they found him guilty. I'm not sure how someone throws out a trial because someone in a hotel who was inebriated was suddenly like, I can do witchcraft and I'm going to make my own Ouija board. But yeah, they threw it out. But then he got, you know, convicted again. Now... There is fallout, right? Because two people died. Quote, responding to the Court of Appeals decision, Nicola's father said the Ouija jurors made a complete joke of our daughter's death, which is true. Absolutely. If you are selected to go out and be a juror on a murder case, take it fucking seriously. They So like the um, the judge and the prosecution and the defense are going to give the jurors explicit instructions on what they are allowed to consider when they are discussing this case. And I'm fairly certain no judge has ever been like, and consult your Ouija board just to make sure. 
It's like never the blatant, the blatant disrespect. Yes, the blatant disrespect. Two people are dead. Yeah. What What do you expect? Like, uh, they're not gonna. First of all, if a Ouija board actually worked, they're not gonna come talk to you. You mean absolutely nothing to them. So I think if a Ouija board were going to work at some point, it might be while convicting the person who killed me or killed them. Yeah, but the thing is, they already were like, yeah, this person definitely did it. So, like, they already had the evidence. Yeah, I mean, after five weeks, they already convicted this person. Like, this person was guilty. There was no need to do this. Like, there was no mystery. There was no need. Yeah, it was just, like, Mm. it was disrespectful, honestly. They were wasting people's time, really. Like, if they already had a decision... They should not have been staying another night. They should have said, we have a decision. I, I don't know if the decision was made, but enough information was collected to prove that this individual murdered them. Mm. So dumb. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's fucking terrible. Mm. So essentially, yeah, a Ouija board was actually used to mistrial a murder case. And that's my segment. So today I was going to talk about Leonardo da Vinci, but if you're curious about him, there is so much. And my hook was going to be that he made his living as a military engineer and likely had ADHD because he rarely finished any work at all. That's not to say he was lazy. He just had like a thousand ideas at once. Anyway, uh, Leo is interesting, but not so obscure because I found so much this could be a seasons long topic. So I'm going to tell you about Mary Kenner, her inventions, and about how her work contributed to female liberation. Okay. Yes. All right. I'm down. I'm down. Mary Beatrice Davidson, later Kenner, was born in Charlotte, North Carolina on May 17, 1912. She was born into a family of black inventors. Her father, Sidney Nathaniel Davidson, invented a stretcher on wheels for ambulances. Her grandfather invented a light signal for trains. And her sister Mildred invented a board game. Neither dad nor her grandfather got recognition for their work. Shocking. Damn. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, are we surprised? Yep. So they were just a hardworking family who didn't really benefit from their work so much. But anyways, Mary was a teenager in the 1920s and not on board with putting her life on hold once a month to deal with menstruation. Good for her. Right? At this time in history, people with uteruses had to use rags or tampons. Literal rags. Leftover scraps of fabric. And tampons at this time were considered indecent for young girls because they were inserted into the vaginal canal. Back to Mary. She moved to Washington, D.C. at age 12. And there she would visit the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to check to see if anyone had already patented her ideas. So like I said, Mary was not satisfied with the options available to women to deal with their menstruations. And like I said, she came from a family of inventors, and she used her ingenuity and created an elastic sanitary belt with a moisture-proof pocket. Her invention, the elastic sanitary belt, looks like a thong underwear, except the part that would go up your butt crack 
as, you know, in a thong would go up your butt crack is mm-hmm. actually as wide as an ordinary pad, which makes sense because that part had the pocket to hold the pad like napkin to collect the menses. So Mary had no degree or specific training in, in eventing. She graduated from Dunbar High School in 1931 and then went on to Howard University where she was schooled for about a year and a half, but was unable to complete due to gender discrimination at the time, as well as financial difficulties. She went on to work for the Census Bureau and the General Accounting Office for the federal government. And despite her lack of education, she filed the most patents of any African-American woman to this day. She has five Damn. she has five patents in her name. Good for her. And those patents are a serving tray and soft pocket that attached to a walker, a back washer that attached to a shower wall, and a toilet paper holder that ensured the loose end of the paper was always reachable. And there's two more and I've lost my notes about them. I'm sorry. What happened to that invention? Which one? The toilet paper. Oh, so you can still see it in a lot of, like, um, public bathrooms from, like, the 1960s. I don't know if you've seen them. They're, it's Yeah, well, put it in the 2022s because I want to always have the toilet paper available. I know. Those big, those big ones with the giant toilet paper yeah. rolls and you have to, like, spin them. And everybody's Useless. like, what are you doing in there? Are you Bring it back. Bring it back. Wheel, right? Terrible. It's ridiculous. In 1950, she became a professional florist, and at one point, she ran four shops in Washington, D.C. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So she was an entrepreneur. In 1970, she sold her last shop and moved to Virginia. She was married twice, first to a soldier, but they were divorced. She went on to marry a second time to a heavyweight boxer named James Jabbo Kenner, and that was in 1951. Mary and James fostered many children together and eventually adopted one of their fosters named Woodrow. Like I said, Mary invented her sanitary belt in the 1920s, but it wasn't until 1957 that she was granted a patent. And here's why women were deprived access to this life-changing tool. Mary Kenner was Black. Of course it was. Yep. Because why not include racism with everything else? Yep. So Mary is quoted in Laura F. Jeffrey's book, Amazing American Inventors of the 20th Century, as saying, quote, One day I was contacted by a company that expressed an interest in marketing my idea. I was so jubilant. I saw houses, cars, and everything about to come my way. Sorry to say, when they found out I was black, their interest dropped. Uh, you know what? I shouldn't be surprised because everything is terrible. So I guess everything continues to be terrible. I think Mary, I mean, there are a lot of interviews of Mary near the end of her life. So I think she ended up having a pretty decent life. Um, she lived to be 93. That's a long life. Yeah, she, uh, she died just in 2006. Mary's belt was a precursor to the pad, the maxi pad. 
and a stride in the direction of bodily freedom for menstruators. I would like to take a look at the history of technology for menstruators, but first a message from our sponsors. Bing bong! Bing bong! Oh, hi Casey! What are you doing here at the dress department of a department store? Shopping for my cotillion dress. Oh, how exciting. But these are red dresses. Don't you need a white dress for cotillion? I know, but I'll have my monthly for cotillion. I can't risk a red spot on a white on a white virginal dress. I'm so embarrassed. Oh, not anymore. Gather round, friends with uteruses. We no longer need to worry about menses ruining our days. Listeners, that's her pulling out a feminine product and quickly with effort. This is terrible. I hope you all love us for this. How on earth is a bag of chips going to help me stop my flow? Don't be silly. This is the newest napkin from FemSloth. Just attach one of these to your panties and no liquid, not even that bright blue stuff, will wreck your seat. What sorcery is this? I no longer have to cower in a cave like bear, like bear. It says not even like a bear. Okay. Like bear in winter. Like a bear. No, we're Russian now. (laughs) What sorcery is this? (laughs) Except we're not Russian because we support Ukraine. (laughs) What sorcery is this? I no longer have to cower in in a cave like bear in winter. That's the spirit. The We're go- gonna get, when <laughs> going, going gets, gets tough, tough. Get femsloth. Fem this moment was brought to you by femsloth, a JG Jackson company, and your source for demure solutions. Dear listener, you may have noticed that that was not a real advertisement. It was absolutely fucking terrible. <laughs> And perhaps you picked up on some negative attitudes toward menstruation. Well, I'm here to tell you that this ad is not unlike the sentiments most Americans and other regions I'll touch on later still hold or held until very recently. According to the Smithsonian's exhibit on feminine hygiene products until the late 1970s, Americans expressed great discomfort with the very idea of women's hygiene. Quote, This discomfort is especially apparent in our continued reliance on the euphemism feminine hygiene, a term which we often use to discuss products associated with menstruation, genital cleanliness, and contraception. This reminds me of like Summer's Eve and stuff like that. We're like, oh yeah, you got to put soap in your vagina. Like your vagina cleaned itself out. Oh yeah. Use of this euphemism allows us to avoid any direct reference to female anatomy, end quote. So let me just say, vagina, vulva, period, menses, blood, discharge, uterus, ovulation, blood clots. Okay. I had to say it all. Products were meant to make women appear healthy while menstruating because society is fucked and believed any sign that a person's uterus prepared for a fertilized egg and then went through a self-cleaning cycle on regular intervals when said egg passed through unfertilized was somehow unfucking healthy <sighs> So, what do we have to solve this problem of appearing fertile? 
Well, um, the manufacturers have provided us with pads and tampons, obviously, but also suppositories, creams, spray deodorants, powders, and douches, or douche powders, like the one made by Lorate, and such perfect packaging that I would buy it today, even though I know it would give me a yeast infection, and it says feminine daintiness on it. I sent it to you. You know, you know, most of these are created by men, right? Oh, yes. They're not even created by women. I'm going to talk about a man. Like the inventors of like most of these things are created by men. Yeah. Yes. Um, in our Encyclopedia Obscura email, there should be a document with a picture of the Lorraine product. And it is fucking fabulous marketing because it looks like it would like. Get rid of, like, dandruff, maybe. I just think it's beautiful. Like, the pink and the teal. Like, that really appeals no, to me. No, you like pink and teal, though. That's I do. your thing. It appeals to me. I would not buy this shit. Well, I would. So, they got my vagina. They've, they've captured one. Yep. All right. So, let's get... <laughs> so, let's go back to the beginning of all these. Some helpful and some harmful products. SimpleHealth.com reports that, quote, menstruation has been so taboo historically that even the word taboo comes from the Polynesian term tapu, meaning sacred or menstrual flow. So here are some ancient solutions. In ancient Egypt, women would soften papyrus and use it as a tampon. In Greece... Little bits of wood would be wrapped. No, no, absolutely not. No. They would wrap these little bits of wood in lint and use them as... Even worse. Yep, yep. And all over the place, and still currently, apparently, although I've never seen them marketed, women use sea sponges as tampons. I have heard of that. Yeah? Yeah. So, back to history... There's not a lot in the historical record about menstruation, but there is one account from 4th century Rome in which Hypatia, the first female mathematician, threw a used menstrual cloth at a man so he'd leave her alone. And here's some medieval bullshit. Religious shame? Did they did they kill her? No. Oh, we moved on. Okay, we moved on. Yeah, no, that was in 4th century Rome. We are moving forward to medieval Europe and their bullshit. And which, yeah, so menstruating was surrounded by religious shame. And mainly because Menses' blood was considered a female's body getting rid of toxins and waste. I mean, they believed in bloodletting. To release toxins. So it does make scientific sense if you agree. Does it, though? Well, I mean, if you believe that letting out your blood is going to get rid of the toxins, it kind of makes sense. More people should be punched in the throat. I'm just going to say it. So here's something that really doesn't make sense. Nope. Don't want it. Don't want it. Medieval times, people believed that drinking Menses' blood caused leprosy. I'm going to throw up. Why would you do that? It's discarded vaginal tissue. Uh, uterine tissue. But yeah, why? Whatever. Why? It, it's come from your insides. Yeah, I don't know why anybody would, would drink it. But apparently, Ugh. if you did, you got leprosy. Sure. That checks out. Yeah. Not really. Absolutely. It's not a communicable disease. But whatever. What? 
God's name. Yeah, exactly. However, there was a little bit of hope. Drink more wine after this. There was a little bit of hope for women. Was there, though? Sounds terrible. This all sounds terrible. Because, listen, if you were to burn a toad and then pour its ashes around your neck, your cramps wouldn't suck so bad. Karen, come on now. That's it. That's all I got. All right. So we are going to just, like, shoot forward into the 18th century, okay? Until 1831, one of the most prolific inventors of the more harmful shame-inducing products was Dr. R.V. Pierce of Buffalo, New York, who sold mail-order remedies in the late 1800s. His products included Dr. Pierce's Golden Medical Discovery Pills. have no idea what those did. Yeah, seriously, what the fuck? (laughs) Dr. Pierce's favorite prescription tablets. Also, no idea what those do. Or Dr. Pierce's Pleasant Pellets. I'm pretty sure those were just opium. And Dr. Pierce's medicated tampons. What? Yeah. What's a medicated tampon? It's um, it's a tampon soaked in different solutions. His remedies often contained alcohol and opium. And he made millions of dollars and opened a hotel in 1878 to house the patients that swarmed Buffalo seeking his healing hands. Because they were cracked out. They were. They were. His reach even stretched across the pond to London. Dr. Pierce served as a New York State Senator for a short time. Like many exploitative men from New York, he retired to Florida and died. Okay, so around the same time Pierce was getting his start, sanitary aprons were popular. And to quote Sarah Vostral, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University, quote, They were pieces of rubber that you would wear over your butt between your bloomer and skirt. So when you sat down, there was a rubber barrier. They were heavy and stinky, and it could not have been comfortable. End quote. In eighteen fantastic. <laughs> in eighteen ninety six, uh, Johnson and Johnson marketed a disposable napkin, but it was not a hit because back then people didn't waste money on things you just throw out, and I think that's fair. A decade later, World War One necessitated developments in surgical dressings, and those advancements were then used in sanitary napkins. For example, sphagnerins were. A branded napkin made from sphagna moss, <laughs> which is harvested in the Pacific Northwest. This plant is useful in many ways. One, it holds moisture, so great for amending dry soil and sucking up menses. Two, it has antibacterial properties, so good for places you don't want bacteria. Three, really good at capturing carbon, which helps reduce greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and slow climate change. So maybe just let that shit grow. But anyways, yeah, they used this plant in uh, period products uh, after World War One, when the same product was used, the same plant was used in dressings for soldiers. But it turns out people preferred Kotex napkins. So Kotex was made out of cotton wood pulp. Well, Wood pulp that was made to feel like cotton, not actual cotton, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense since cotton is actually more sustainable than wood. 
But here we are. Both these products were either safety pinned or stuck or just like stuck in undergarments. Tampons also became available around the same time. They were used medically to stop bleeding in deep wounds and to administer medication, including birth control, into the vagina. Older product packaging often masked the product's intended effect, which sometimes included contraception. So that's kind of interesting. So the Smithsonian Collection that I mentioned earlier also contains examples of products that are now associated mostly with um, household disinfectants or oral care, such as Lysol and Lavarus, but they were advertised as vaginal douches. Lysol! Lysol! People oh my were encouraged God. to shoot Lysol up their woo-haws. Jesus Christ. All right. So also in the 1920s, Kotex pads were mainly marketed to wealthy white women in department stores. And here's a quote from Women's Health Magazine. The women would leave a nickel in a jar and take a pad from a box so they wouldn't have to call attention to themselves. This was also the year women got the right to vote. Moving on to the 1930s, Leona Chalmers patented and produced the first menstrual cup, but they weren't popular because of the ick factor. People still didn't want to touch their own menses. 1931, a man named Earl Hass creates the tampon with a cardboard applicator. In 1933, Gertrude Tendrich bought the patent from Earl Hass and founded Tampax. But this product, tampons, were only marketed to married women. Yes, because, you know, you can't have a tampon in and be a virgin. <sighs> tampons uh, were also used to treat prolapsed uteruses at this time. So, 1969, the first adhesive pad hits the market, thanks to Stay Free Company. Also in 1969, an ad for pristine deodorant spray read, quote, the trickiest deodorant problem a girl has isn't under her pretty little arms. Today, sprays and deodorants are not oh recommended my. by gynecologists because they cause it's, oh my itching, burning, okay. irritation that leads to infection. 1972, New Freedom Markets Maxi Pads with a campaign about bodily and political freedom. So that's kind of nice that they realize that somebody finally realizes that being chained to something like a period should not have to slow you down. Also in 1972, the National Association of Broadcasters lifts the ban on advertising for menstrual pads and tampons on the television and radio. 1975, a company called Rely makes a polyester and carboxymethyl cellulose tampon that were more absorbent than cotton, but also became the perfect setting for bacteria to grow, especially the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus, which causes toxic shock syndrome. These were recalled in 1980. But before that, in 1976, pads 
were finally classified as medical devices by the FDA. Prior to that, there was absolutely no consideration to what went into pads. 1983, NASA thought Sally Ride would need 100 tampons for one week in space. NASA. No, I've heard about this. Yep. It's ridiculous. 1985, Courtney Cox is the first person to say period in a commercial for tampons. 1995, wait, I just want to point out that it was like 13 years before that they were allowed to have ads for tampons and pads on television, and it took them that long to say the word period. So we're just supposed to get the fucking innuendo. Moving on, 1995, a company was established in 1995 called Time of the Month, Inc., and they sold trail mix under the name PMS Crunch. Ew. No. No. Ew. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Also in the 1990s, a counter movement attempted to celebrate a person's first period. One product from this movement was the first moon kit. The Washington Post reported, quote, it's a way to send a message to girls that it's not a hygienic crisis, but a transition from girlhood to womanhood. Oh, my God. Please stop. And really, I calls for celebration, end quote. Close out this segment, I swear to God. I can't even. All right. 1990- Just close it out. 1997, New York Representative Carolyn Maloney introduces the Tampon Safety and Research Act to require tampon manufacturers to release information about the levels of certain chemicals used in tampons. The act was not passed in 1997. It was not passed in 1999, 2003, 2005, 2008, 2011, 2014, or 2015. In 2003, birth control is FDA approved to skip periods altogether. And so today, we have our pads, we have our tampons in all sizes and packaging options. We have cups and discs, reusable pads, which are sold on Etsy, and underwear designed for bleeding. Today, the global feminine hygiene industry is worth $15 billion and growing. But not everybody has access to these products. According to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, period poverty is defined as... Inadequate access to menstrual hygiene tools and education, including but not limited to sanitary products, washing facilities, and waste management. UNESCO reported in 2014 that one in 10 menstruating students miss school during their period due to not having access to menstrual products. In developing nations, period products look a lot like they did prior to Mary Kenner's belt and World War I gauze advancements. Old cloth, pieces of wool, or worse, paper and leaves. Many schools in these areas lack sufficient toilets and privacy, have poor water and sanitation infrastructure that makes having a period impossible to manage. In America, SNAP, also known as food stamps, and WIC, which is the subsidy for women and children, does not cover period products. It wasn't until the Corona Aid Relief and Economic Security Act that we were allowed to use our medical flex spending accounts for period products. Because people who menstruate only live in some municipalities, and that's a joke, people with periods live in all municipalities, 
the U.S. has left this responsibility to states and even school districts to manage. Funding is often left out of bills, so while schools may be required to provide products, the money isn't provided. 23 states and the District of Columbia have recently ended sales tax on these products or never had any to begin with, which is great. That's a step in the right direction, but that still leaves more states taxing products necessary for period maintenance. While 17 additional states brought laws erasing sales tax on essential products, New Hampshire's Republican representative sought to reverse a law requiring schools to provide said products to students for free. That representative said, I don't think the state of New Hampshire should be micromanaging schools regarding how and where to provide these products. And you know what I say to her? It is a her. I agree. The state should provide the products to the schools to ensure the students with uteruses have equal access to public education, as that is their right. (sighs) Research on this subject is limited because of the stigma, but one 2019 survey of low-income women in St. Louis, Missouri, showed the following. 65% could not afford menstrual hygiene supplies during the previous year. About 46% of women could not afford to pay for food and menstrual products and 21% were unable to afford products on a monthly basis. One-third of them used alternatives, as mentioned before, whereas others used children's diapers or paper towels because they didn't have pads or tampons. (sighs) California only began mandating public schools and colleges supply-free pads and tampons in restrooms in November of 2021. But let's get to the good stuff. Period spelled in all caps, is an organization leading the menstrual movement through service, education, and advocacy. They distribute free menstrual products to communities in need, provide educational resources, and have been involved in much of the legislation we just talked about. If period poverty speaks to you or your humanitarian side, please check out period.org to learn how you can get involved or donate. But you know what? If we look around now, It looks like the new generation of American menstruators are leaving the stigma behind and they don't feel compelled to hide their tampons up their sleeves on their way to the bathroom. They're interested in sustainable and reusable products like period panties and cups and amen to that. So things are getting better. It's just a really slow fucking process. And I think it's a good sign that... There is research going into this now. There are well-organized organizations working on this. So it can only go up from here. So if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us at eothepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Encyclopedia Obscura. So message us and let us know your weird, mysterious, or obscure ideas for a future episode. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us.